Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here, and this morning we're talking to Fraser Simons, the designer of The Veil and the upcoming game Hack the Planet. Thank you for making the time for us today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Uh, I am pretty good, all things considered. It's a bit early, but, uh, you know, we're, we, I'm excited to be doing this interview. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Thanks a lot for making time, especially when I learned what time it was there. <laughs> Uh, originally, uh, I have a, I have other things on at the moment, and uh, this just seemed like the best time that would fit into both of our schedules. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, fantastic. Uh, so, um, I mentioned a little bit about you in that uh, opening section, uh, but why don't we get started by talking about what your background is um, and uh, how you got into game design? So. Uh, what other skills and or uh, uh, things have you done before being a game designer, or or to put it another way, what do how do you sell your labour uh, to survive <laughs> in the capitalist hellscape in which we are forced to live? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. I'm a, especially because I'm an operations manager. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I work for security. Well, it used to be a security company. Now it's security and home automation. So we went from like, we need to protect people to, sure, but do you want to use your phone to also see out of your doorbell? <laughs> and That's who doesn't want to use their phone to see out of their doorbell? There's a surprising amount of people actually are into that. But um, yeah, so I went from being like a technician who installs those things to someone who manages offices like that. And I've been doing that for like oof, 10 years, I guess. Wow. Uh, and, and when did you start taking an interest in uh, game design? About four or five years ago, my brother, uh, Kyle Simons, is the designer of... Uh, his first game was Magicians, and that was for... Um, it was originally going to be his like thesis statement for school, but it ended up that in Korea, they the only game design they're interested in is like StarCraft, and they don't understand what a role-playing game is, so... Instead, it just ended up being his first published work. And when he came home for Christmas, after that, he ran Dungeon World for me. And that's how he kind of, like, got me into it. Wonderful. Um, that's interesting kind of uh, uh, track there uh, to it. Uh, what was the first thing that you designed and put out? I, it would have been The Veil. Yeah, it took a couple years to do that one. And originally I wasn't even going to put it out, but then Kyle insisted that it would was like really cool and people would dig it. I was pretty sure it was not going to fund <laughs> on Kickstarter, but did it anyway. And, and then it kind of set me on a path because uh, it's really the first time that I am creative in my life at all. Like I don't, I don't like paint or draw or, do any of that other stuff. So when my brother was like, oh, you should just, you know, like we played Dungeon World and I was like, is there a cyberpunk thing for this? And he said, no, you should just make it. And, uh, and my response was, I am not a creative person. And his response was, you probably haven't tried. <laughs> so I tried <laughs> and it worked well. 
So the veil was the first kind of thing that you'd ever uh, designed put out, and you said that you hadn't really been creative before that. No, yeah, I hadn't. I've just been before before doing this. I had been an operations manager, and when I wasn't an operations manager, I opted to be a techie around as well when I was young and spry and able. <laughs> so I pretty much just worked six days a week uh, for 12 to 16 hours a day for about eight years until about two years ago when I started doing uh, game design more on the, the side and I, I stopped doing that full rotation. Yeah, cool. Uh, so... Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Hack the Planet, which is what you're working on at the moment uh, and what you're currently trying to kickstart. Sure. Yeah, Hack the Planet is a weird little esoteric cyberpunk game in that I'm pairing it with climate fiction, which um, I think cyberpunk more than ever is is relevant, but uh, the retrofuturism of it doesn't quite make sense. So I paired it with climate fiction where a natural disaster and climate change has taken place so that we do get that kind of retro future aesthetic where some things are quite futuristic, like 20, 30, 40 years from now, the technology that we might develop. But then there's other things that uh, are still retro about it and that they don't have because the internet was sort of wiped off and they might have like phone booths and stuff like that. And we still get a gritty uh, cyberpunk aesthetic because Everyone is in Shelter One, which is turning into a mega city, and the corporations are turning it into a. Uh, they're trying to turn it into the mega city that we know from cyberpunk fiction. But there's also um, what I'm calling acts of God, which uh, permeate the landscape, like massive tornadoes and maybe even earthquakes and uh, like tsunamis that hit and stuff like that. So. It's got like a Blade Runner, the first Blade Runner aesthetic in the sort of low life aspects. But then we're also bringing in the Blade Runner 2049 stuff where we see that there's, you know, consequences to the human lifestyle and the capitalistic machine that's churning. Wonderful. It sounds like you've got a pretty uh, firm grasp of uh, the thematics of cyberpunk that you want to bring in to uh, your work. Uh what kind of you mentioned a little bit there the inspiration, um, but what kind of other cyberpunk uh, works did you touch on, and what does uh, what what do you feel are like the defining genre characteristics of cyberpunk for your work at least um, for this project? Hmm. Uh, aesthetically, Elysium is a really big. Um, visual component of it because it, I think it's like on the same scale. Like the planet is kind of ruined and the technology that they have is pretty futuristic, but not so much the stuff that we see in normal visual media of cyberpunk. And then, um, whatchamacallit, for literary component to it, I would say The Wind Up Girl and The Water Knife is not really cyberpunk, but, um, borrow a lot from that and loosed upon the world is a whole like a i wouldn't say a tome but it's a pretty big book of uh short fiction that has some sort of cyberpunky stories and stuff like that and i've read a lot of solar punk before and i'm borrowing components of that but not making it as 
um, I would say happy (laughs) 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 where where they're like, everything is fine. Technology is not the end of us all. We can use it to help things. Um, I want to have a balance and hack the planet where there's the, you know, churn of capitalism and terrible things are happening, but there's also human ingenuity with people living in sort of a compromise environment with climate fiction, having radicalized a whole bunch of the landscape and limited the reach of, of man, at least for the people living in shelter one. Yeah. Uh, last week we did another interview with uh, some Australian developers that working, we're working on a game that had some cyberpunk uh, aesthetics to it. Um, and we were talking about the, uh, the, uh, the, the various, uh, blank plunk, uh, blank punk, uh, genre fiction, uh, and how lots of them aren't punk. And, uh, we, we, we very briefly touched on solar punk, uh, and, and the person had said, oh, it's, it's too, it's too happy, uh, to be cyberpunk. And I'm like, yeah, but it's really DIY, which is very punk. Uh, and it's very anti-establishment. Uh, so it's, uh, it's nice to hear that, um, you, uh, are finding things in Solarpunk that are useful as well, uh, to you. Yeah. Like, I think there's a tendency of different generations to classify cyberpunk differently. Like the generation that grew up with it is very much kind of attached it to the actual punk movement and what that means to them and them having lived through it. Whereas my generation and other academia um, like to say, that's not how genre works, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just how it's like, as, as far as I'm concerned, it's a form of resistance, which I mean, still happens today. People still resist. You can still label them as punks. The word is just evolving. Uh, through time. So I think all of them have, you know, value. I, I like biopunk as well a lot. Like the wind up girl is more biopunk than cyberpunk, but in a lot of ways of it, depiction of capitalism and, and uh, minorities and marginalization, it's better than lots of cyberpunk stories, I think. So there's, there's value in all of them, I think. Yeah. Dark angel is a biopunk story that, mm-hmm. um, that I have, that was important to me when I was growing up. Definitely. Um, I, I used to watch that all the time. Um, yeah, interesting. So, um, I'd love uh, I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about the uh, setting in a moment. But I thought we might talk about the um, mechanics a little bit of your game. Now, it is a f- uh, forged in the dark game. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yep. it uses borrows a lot of rules from. Uh, Blades in the Dark, uh, and in fact, some people might say it's a Blades in the Dark hack. Um, but uh, I want to talk about a f- what are the things that you have changed from Blades in the Dark? Uh, how are your uh, playbooks different, uh, and uh, what things have you kept the same? Um, let's see. It's hard to answer with Blades in the Dark because what I've found when I'm um, like quote unquote hacking it is that it is so intrinsically tied to the setting that it is harder, I would say, to hack than PBTA because it really forces you to interrogate the setting and everything is tied to it, like from the context on the sheet to your um, items that you're selecting 
to the verbs that you're doing with the like poetry layer as, as Adam Coble and John Harper label it. Um, so I think, I think like raw uh, system wise, it is going to be not much of a drift, which is to say it's quite similar to blades in the dark because I really am using it because I, I want to play blades in the dark in a cyberpunk setting. So the uh, special abilities or as some people would label them as like the, the moves of the playbooks, but are different, differently named in this one are um, of course mapped to the setting and the different playbooks are aimed at doing different things, but there's still the core um, classes or archetypes of blades just recontextualized for uh, this cyberpunk climate fiction uh, game. And then the mechanical drift, I think that would be the biggest would be healing and is a little bit different just because in the future, uh, you know, there's, there's better medical care, medical tech and stuff like that. So healing's a little bit easier, but it also uh, costs more and whatnot. And cybernetics is something that will decrease your stress track, but you gives you an extra um, action dot in your, particular ability that you want to increase. Um, So it's sort of like a push your luck in a different way. Like at the beginning of the game, you can start off as a cybernetic uh, with a cybernetic, sorry, but it'll decrease your stress track by one. And then going forward, the second one will take another two. The third one will take another three, but you also have an XP uh, track for stress so that you can regain it. So there's a little bit more, uh, game to this stress track, which I think is pretty similar to Band of Blades, the one that Strosh is doing. I think it has an XP stress track as well. And otherwise, yeah, just like... So you lose stress um, boxes, basically, but you can buy them back? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you can buy them back, and then the cybernetics that you're um, actually getting that represent that decrease in the stress will increase your action in a particular thing. But uh, stress is a major part of the game. So it's sort of like pushing your luck immediately at character creation or throughout the game when you get more cybernetics. If somebody really needed an extra dot in, I don't know, like stalking, which is the sort of hunt action in this one, they could maybe pay to get a cybernetic thing installed that helps them with that, but then their stress track would go down another two, right? And so it's just, yeah, a little bit more gamey in that way if people are entering into a specific mission and really need a thing and they have the cash, then they could just get a cybernetic, but during that mission you have a little bit less stress and you're a little less, uh, I wouldn't say capable, but... It's definitely a question as to what your roles are going to be during that mission, if you need that stress or not. Is that mechanic meant to represent um, uh, the body being stressed from uh, the physical cost of surgery? Or is it meant to be, and a few cyberpunk games, I would say a lot of cyberpunk games do this, um, or is it meant to model... um, a sense of loss of self. Um, I think it's like a little bit of both. People can 
kind of classify it how they want, but I, I am, I'm of the mind of, I think there's like two different schools of thought in, in cyberpunk academia, which is like, it comes down to embodiment and what it means generally uh, female perspectives is like embodiment matters and their protagonists uh, are like their bodies are, are hindered when they get cybernetics. And then there's the male school of thought or which is like mind over matter and the meat doesn't matter, stuff like that. And I'm, I'm more to the female perspective. So for me, it's, I think like uh, a cost of the actual physical body and not so much the, the like essence or whatever, or, or the karma, like in Shadowrun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know that, uh, a, a criticism, uh, I've, I've often seen and often support of things like Shadowrun is the idea that if, uh, if, if, uh, if cybernetics, uh, in cyberpunk media makes you less human, uh, which is often like the, the shorthand, um, then, Aren't you giving a big middle finger to the disabled um, when yeah. you say shit like that? And that's not very punk, is it? Saying disabled people are less human because they want to have limbs uh, and stuff like that. Um, so it thinks that it seems like you've struck a, a balance there, to me at least, where you can you can play it how you want. It could be the, the stress to the body or the stress to the mind, depending on which one fits your character more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I wanted to support both, uh, schools of thought, but yeah, there's, there's definitely problematic stuff leaning into both ways, which is generally what happens when academia likes to comment on, Works being done. It's pretty pol- polarizing, generally. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, something I noticed in your game that is different to other uh, powered by the uh, not powered by the apocalypse, other blades in the dark stuff I've seen is the axe of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought you might like to talk about that because I feel like that is uh, the axe of God stuff um, mechanic mechanics and whatnot are going to set your game apart mechanically to, for people that are like, Oh, why would I, why would I buy this just to read the setting material? Um, if it's, uh, if it's so similar, um, I, I think the blades in the book, the, 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 it'll come back to me in a second. Uh, the, I think the, uh, acts of God stuff is going to, uh, set your game apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd love for you to talk about that. Sure. So acts of God in this is just like radicalized weather events. And so when you make a crew, there's a whole bunch of different starting moves and you'll choose your relationship to them. So you might be, uh, for instance, I'm running a game where people are the wired, which is sort of like the hawkers uh, playbook. And they're able to, sort of take these acts of gods or chunks of them uh, when they surmount them as an obstacle in the game and turn the, the distillation of these things into a product that they sell. So it could be like fuel or it could be drugs or it could be a whole bunch of different things. Uh, there's other moves for killing weather. There's moves for just trying to evade the weather. Uh, there's a whole, I'm trying to make a move to, uh, allow the players to do 
whatever they uh, want with the acts of God that they think would be most interesting. But through that definition and choice, you'll have a certain relationship with the environment around you that will change. And uh, it works really well with Blades in the Dark because they have that magnitude uh, scale already. So when you're making an act of God, you can just look at the magnitude chart and see what the scale and the size and uh, the power of it is and, and create one quite easily, which will be, you know, changed for the game, of course. But um, it was important to me that there'd be a player relationship with the uh, environment around them and that they could change that throughout the game as well. If you're the mercenaries types who have developed a technology that actually kills the weather and, uh, the ramifications of that becomes known in the fiction, then you could change it to a different thing. Uh, so as people's movements through the fiction change, it's represented uh, mechanically and enforced that way as well. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think we talked about it uh, maybe briefly at the beginning, but um, it occurred to me, we haven't gone super into de- in depth into um, the narrative motivation for play. Um, that is to say, in Blades in the Dark, you are uh, people trying to, you know, make money and survive in Duskvol um, by doing doing criminal stuff, uh, for the most part. Um, I feel like the motivation in uh, Hack the Planet is a little nobler from what I've seen. Uh, what is the what is the premise uh, from the player perspective of the game? What is the uh, central activity, I guess? Um, So in this game, there's a few different things that you could be doing. The corporations that run Shelter One have tracers out looking for people, and um, their purpose is basically to create a labor force from the people that have tipped climate change but have come to shelter one for, you know, refuge and sanctuary. And they get put into a prison where they essentially power the city through various means. And you play people that are not down with that idea. Basically (laughs) you are uh, still like a criminal element. And it could be that you want to claw power back from the corporations just to have more of your own, but there's also the opportunity for you to be people who are trying to undercut this systemic control before it gets to out of control with the uh, corporations. They're, they're sort of like finding their, their own stride with the city and trying to twist it to its own will, as opposed to like a refuge. And you could be the, the people that, take that idea away from them and uh, claw back control of the city to uh, the people instead. Or you could just be the Blades in the Darks folks who are just like, I want to take over the city because I'm the one that should be in charge. It's up to you. (laughs) Uh, Cool. Uh, So uh, how does the, uh, how, how does the, um, how do the acts of God interface with that? So they, they still wreck the city and the corporations empower different elements in the setting to combat that. 
but uh yeah like there there's other people that can do things with the acts of god but maybe not people like you who are as of effective at doing whatever move that you've taken to interface with it and so whatever you do in the setting you might get to a point where the acts of god are a little bit better but it's something that everybody has to contend with including the corporations and that's part of a thing that makes them vulnerable so you'll have a for people familiar with blades in the dark there's like a countdown clock for acts of god to occur and you might use that as an opportunity for a quote unquote like score for whatever move that you are having uh, to take with your crew. You could be like, sweet, now we can go kill it and we can make money and bill it to the corporation or whatever. Or great, now we can go steal more of its uh, essence and make some illicit drugs or whatever. But the corporations are at the same will of these acts of God. So you could also be like, sweet, we're going to use this as cover to you know, insert ourselves into nourish the gene hacking company and extricate some scientists that they need to do the work that they do to create crops and stuff like that and, and subjugate these scientists essentially. So there's two coins there. I kind of love the idea of using a hurricane as cover for a, for a heist. Um, that just sounds like fantastic time. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, cool. So, uh, what kind of, uh, a feature of, uh, a lot of, uh, Blades in the Dark stuff is that you have a very kind of specifically detailed city that you play in that is surrounded by a kind of vague landscape, like the wider setting the world that Duskfall sits in, for example, is kind of... It's got some weird elements, but it's not super defined um, in a lot of places. Uh, but you have a lot of specific details about the cities, in, in p- the city itself. Uh, in particular, uh, I'm interested in the, inf- uh, in, uh, the factions. Um, you've got a lot of factions in uh, Duskfall and... Uh, I was interested in hearing what kind of factions are represented in Shelter 21, was it? Uh, just Shelter 1. Oh, just Shelter 1? Yeah. Yeah, what kind, of, uh, what kind of factions exist within the Shelter? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different factions within there, and most of them, well, not most of them, but a whole bunch of them are meant to be um, sort of showcases for climate fiction and the relationship that people might develop with that thing. So there could be, well, for one, there's the mirrored, which are people who have taken to stripping themselves of their identity and wearing these uh, masks that reflect people back at them. And they're sort of like becoming more radicalized and they wear these masks to, uh, reflect the visage of their oppressors back on them. And then there's also the uh, Krokai Stigma, which are people that grow saffron who are basically assassins and live in the, um, what you may call it, in the upper echelons of society as sort of like the caretakers of people's gardens. Like if you think of Japanese gardens with the amount of um, 
detail and the amount of time that you have to put in to maintain it. Think of that, except people are like making curated gardens for these rich people on top of skyscrapers and yada, 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 except that they're waiting for their time to, to strike basically these, these gardeners basically. That's kind of cool. Um, it, It reminds me of in, of all things, in Samurai Champloo, there's a there's an assassin for the shogunate who's referred to as the gardener and has uh, this immaculate uh, Japanese garden that they when you when they are introduced uh, that you see them tending to. Um, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, there's also uh, there's also porters, which are people who used to do all of the fishing. Uh, but the icebergs uh, up north and south have started melting, and now they use heavy lift machines to harpoon icebergs and bring them back into what's called the, the district is called the basin, where they bring these icebergs and it melts, and that's the uh, water supply for the city. There's manufactured light, which are the people that uh, they're sort of a gang who. Uh, stole a scientist who made a drug called screen. And because of the increased intensity of the sun, uh, people use this drug to, especially porters out at sea and stuff like that, to not get driven mad from exposure. And it you inject yourself with it and it secretes this uh, film over your skin that's basically like sunscreen. But they're the only people that hold this um, this chemical. And they're constantly being pushed and pulled at for people trying to get at that secret, but they're a major faction in the game because uh, simply because they hold this thing. Uh, there's constructed chaos, which is a all female presenting uh, cycle gang. So if you think of um, Akira, basically there, it'd be like an all female presenting Akira gang. Um, there's Sentinels, which is like the police force. There's a there's one that I particularly really like, which is from the Wind Up Girl, that are a bunch of gene hack engineers and farmers who sort of rebelled against Nourish, the the company, to start their own gang and strike out. And they've have like a instead of the night market or a, um, black market and stuff like that, they instead have a Green Mile, which is. Uh, a mile of the city that is where they sell these gene hacked stuff like that, that changes throughout time. Like you, it uh, constantly changes location, but I, I'll probably have to change the faction. But uh, for now, just for my jollies, I've called them the split peas because they gene hack, <laughs> they gene oh, hack wow. stuff. <laughs> that's, uh, that's almost too goofy but at the same time i kind of like it yeah just for like a gag right and and part of it also is in the city just so it doesn't sound too goofy is like a part of the setting is making these really mundane elements of our lives and recontextualizing them for new lives under climate change like how these really mundane objects can become really interesting fictional things uh, just from the introduction of different scarcities and stuff like that. So it kind of fits, but it's still also like when you tell people there's a faction that's called the split piece, people are like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, Wonderful. I mean, all of this stuff is sounding very, uh, it's sounding very evocative to me. Um, uh, You 
talked a bit earlier about how uh, your the technology in your setting is a little more um, advanced than some cyberpunk series have. Mm-hmm. Um, a a uh, listener of ours uh, wanted to know how much um, transhumanism features into your uh, work into Hack the Planet and how much uh, opportunity there is for strange new kinds of uh, of human uh, or whether or or even if that is a, a thing that your game is even meant to model totally yeah there's a lot of that actually um i've hired a bunch of different contributors to uh touch on that stuff because i thought that uh women and um some other marginalized people could make that a really good allegory uh, using transhumanism as a as a th- an actual speaking point for different things that in cyberpunk that they might want to talk about so if you look at the stretch goals almost uh i don't know like four or five of them are transhumanist element stuff and i've left that up to them but there's a whole bunch of different cool stuff going on like uh what is it at 35,000 if we hit it uh ashton is going to do rangers which are it sounds like the vibe that this person's going for maybe but they they take technology that they find away from shelter one and uh twist it into their uh, own means to modify themselves and a whole bunch of other ones that we've already unlocked have some pretty hardcore uh transhumanist themes and I also am really interested in having people create things outside of Shelter One, which uh, for what I'm tentatively calling forged territories, as in they're forged by the uh, the elements, essentially. Oh, as, okay. Uh, so outside of the city, there's locations meant to be set pieces of specific climate fiction stuff that people want to explore and talk about. And they always have a relationship to shelter one in some way. And um, so you'll have transhumanist themes in both uh, a couple locations that we've already unlocked. And then there's a couple playbooks like Andrew Gillis, who's doing girl by moonlight. They are um, doing two playbooks that hit on some pretty transhumanist themes as well as Ashton is doing another one. So you'll, you'll definitely have a whole bunch of stuff like that in the game. And for people that aren't really, into that kind of stuff, um, they can always choose not to use those uh, playbooks and crews, right? So, mm-hmm. cool. Uh, you you mentioned in there, um, Ashton. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. You actually have a couple of Australian designers, uh, at least two that are uh, Australian uh, female designers, or women designers on your. Uh, working for stretch goals and things. Um, and uh, it was interesting uh, to me when, it, uh, when, all, when your game started popping up on my uh, Twitter feed um, and the insert quest here Twitter feed, um, we were seeing uh, you tweeting about it um, and we followed you after backing uh, The Veil uh, a few years back. Uh, and then we were also seeing um, all these Australian game designers that we had learn about last year when we were trying to uh, strengthen our connection to the local community 
um, and Ashton's been uh, one that we've been following for a while, but also Melody. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was interested to hear, um, I guess to begin with, how, how, how did you learn about these Australian designers and why did you uh, want to bring them onto your uh, team, I guess? Uh, and then maybe we can expand into other uh, voices that you have chosen uh, chosen to uh, collect for your project. Sure. Um, well, I, I wasn't like, damn, this needs some Australians or anything. But uh, <laughs> um, I chose Ashton and Melody initially because um, Melody, I, I really like her work. Both of them had followed me on Twitter and we've had a couple of conversations the Rub- the the republic from ashen i think deserves a lot of uh a lot more attention than what it has gotten so far it's a really cool interesting idea and it could definitely be used for some some cyberpunk cool stuff but um yeah i i had just been following them for a while there are people that are active and interested in blades in the dark and forged in the dark games already and i wanted to give some uh, money back to the people that are invested in the community and seeing it grow and possibly uh, doing their own work on it. And every time I was watching streams of other Blades in the Dark games and Girl by Moonlight and stuff like that, they were always really positive, had a great attitude, far smarter than I am. And uh, I wanted to, you know, support those designers. And I'm really interested in supporting people that, uh, you know, actually aren't the normal people that we see on stretch goal activity, we'll say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and they, all, the, when I asked them, they, uh, the pitches that they gave me for the game were just too good to, to pass up. Cool. Uh, what other, uh, voices have you added, uh, to your own for this project and how, um, and, and did you, have in mind when you were bringing on people for stretch goals and things like that of, uh, did you have an idea of, I want to, I want to fill in my, uh, my own, um, I guess shortcomings isn't quite worth the word, but I want to, did you set out with the goal in mind of filling in your own blind spots? Yeah, definitely. That was the the main concern of mine is that uh, I've read so much cyberpunk now that I can really tell what fiction written by marginalized and POC and women versus a white guy is like. I could you could give me a book and I could probably tell you if this is <laughs> a white guy or not, basically, is how much I've re- uh, read of cyberpunk. And I was really concerned that in a game that is so intrinsically tied to setting that I have uh, a full fiction represented uh, in there and not just something that I cooked up and probably has just my own lens uh, attached yeah. to it. So the first person I think I brought in was Kira, and then I went to... Ashton and Kira McGran is great. I worked with her on Cascade and she's doing Storm Speakers, which is like the um like the cultist uh playbook for this game, except from a technological witch perspective. So that's gonna be pretty cool. Uh Storm Speakers stood out to me uh when I was looking at the book. I was uh, when I was looking at the Kickstarter, I was like, Oh wow, that's 
that's out there for for cyberpunk. I'm, I'm down. Yeah, I'm down yeah. for storm witches in my cyberpunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, it it's just interesting and kind of weird. I think that a lot of cyberpunk doesn't have a lot of allegories for like queer culture. And if it does, it's generally not done that well. So I definitely wanted uh, queer content in the game done correctly by actual queer people and not just me hitting up some queer people and being like, yo, what do you think would be neat in this game? Maybe I can write it and stuff like that. I think that uh, I am not the person for that job. (laughs) So I hit up some other individuals to do that. And I think that you can see just from the stretch goals, how interesting the game's going to be. And since the uh, setting is so tied to it, it gives us a lot of leeway to make some, some really esoteric cyberpunk, basically. Um, Like if I was doing this as a PBTA game, it would look a lot differently because People need that context of the setting, I think, to get a bunch of the stuff that people are working on in this game. So, yeah, I I first and foremost wanted to fill in the gaps of my own lens when I was uh, getting people to do it. That's definitely what I was looking for. Cool. I mean, I think that that is an excellent uh, way to go about uh, a, a project like this and to meet those uh, goals that you wanted to. Um, How... So, uh, what kind of um, stretch goals and things uh, do you have uh, for the project? Uh, And what kind of uh, life do you envision for Hack the Planet once this uh, Kickstarter and fulfilling the Kickstarter rewards is all uh, said and done? Where do you envision Hack the Planet as a game uh, going from here? Because it looks like it's doing pretty well. Yeah, um, I think that we'll probably, like, it seems like it has legs, even in sort of the quote-unquote dead zone. We're still getting, like, a a few pledges a day and stuff like that. So I think it's going to to go for a little while yet. And um, coming up, we still have, what, one, two, three, four stretch goals to hit, which is increasing the... Uh, our budget, which is going to be sweet. I, I wanted double page spreads for all of the crews and stuff like that. Uh, Ashton is going to add another crew, which is those the rangers that I was talking about, and a new locale as well, which is directly related to uh, the things that rangers are going to be doing. So again, we have like a, a set piece slash crew thing so that they're not just like slotted into the game. There's some actual setting and things for them to interact with and some commentary on some of the ideas that those designers have for it. Um, there's a new crew for the tracer. So you can become the, the blade runners basically of the setting. And beyond that, um, I'm waiting for quotes to see what it might take to upgrade the book into a hardcover. I'm looking at, the same sort of thing as Blades in the Dark, where I'm looking for an artist who can do a really cool map of all of this stuff, which is called in the in the setting, it's the Reach, which is like the current reach of mankind as seen from Shelter One. So it's going to be like a um, like a strip through the map with all these different locales that people are adding, as well as Shelter One, and then probably like a detailed 
map of sheltered one itself. Um, so I'm looking into things like that. And then beyond this, I think that there could be some, um, legs in publishing some more, uh, setting information and stuff like that, similar to blades where they have the, um, the Aruvian places and stuff like that. I think it would be interesting. I also am looking at maybe doing a stretch goal where I make it a infomocracy. I don't know if you've read that book, but I think it might be interesting if the starting scenario, uh, an optional one, of course, would be like the corporations are trying to make shelter one an infomocracy where every block of 3000 people vote and, uh, so you could be people that are swaying votes different ways and undermining corporations by doing different things in the city and subverting things like that. Um, I think that would be a good kind of underlying way to really get back at the corporations and maybe air some dirty laundry about what they're doing and have a mystery at the center of it and stuff like that. Yeah, cool. Uh, that sounds like an interesting... Uh, it sounds like you've got a bunch of interesting stuff going on. Uh, with the project, um, mm-hmm. what kind of, uh, yeah, uh, I guess the second half of my question from earlier, what kind of life do you envision for uh, Hack the Planet uh, after uh, Kickstarter is all done? Uh, like, um, or, like after and, this and, is published? Yeah, yeah, like do you envision there being more more um, more supplements and things like that or or, or other versions of it um, or, or uh, is this kind of a, once all these things are done, I will continue to be part of uh, work on this project, but there, w- there will be this, this is everything you need. Um, yeah. I, I think it'll be everything that you need with possibly a little bit more supplement stuff coming in that, like uh, maybe there'll be like another shelter or uh, an additional supplement that adds a whole bunch of different locations in the reach for people, maybe um, because I think we're, we're reaching the top end for locations and uh, uh, all that kind of stuff just by sheer amount of pages that we can accommodate in the book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, there might be a supplement coming in the future that details even more of that stuff, especially as more uh, climate fiction comes out and I read more of it and more ideas come to me. I might make some more locales as set pieces for that kind of uh, speaking because I'm really interested in getting people um, to recontextualize cyberpunk as a more relevant uh, medium other than like right now it's sort of used as capitalism is bad. Here's why, here's where we're headed. It's, it's pretty shit post-capitalism bad, but uh, I think it's really interesting to couple that with climate fiction and it's becoming a more and more popular genre as the, you know, bad things are happening that way as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, so as more books like that come out, I'm sure that it would be interesting to pop that into the game and have people do fun um, character-led things there, but also maybe learn a little bit about climate fiction. At least that's the, the goal. Yeah, wonderful. Um, it sounds pretty fantastic. Uh, will your game have, because uh, I was just thinking about uh, all this climate fiction stuff that you're mentioning and, and cyberpunk stuff as well, Um a uh, lot of role-playing games we see now have like an inspiration section or uh, like Fiasco has uh, movie night suggestions for each of the play sets and things like that. Uh, is your game going to include a place where a bunch of people can go and uh, get uh, get your, your book and movie recommendations? 
Yeah, definitely. Just like uh, I think Blades and Scum and Villainy have a little bit of that, but I'll have probably a little bit more comprehensive uh, section where people can check it out. Maybe like a an, an appendix and type thing like I did with Cascade. I think I had it in at the end where it's like a solid two pages of different things like visual media, academia, literary stuff, uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Eclipse Phase has a pretty extensive inspiration section, and it was it was fun for me going through it and being like, "Oh, I recognize, I, I've I've seen this, or I've watched that, or mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've I've read like half of Peter F. Hamilton's catalog. Nice. I recognize a bunch of the stuff in your game from it. Um, uh, yeah, I think uh, I kind of always love those sections, especially when you're like trying to understand something that is present in a game um, or, or try and see how you can make narrative about something that is in the game. And then you can go and see examples uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I'm definitely planning on having that uh, so that especially, I think it'll be especially effective if people are like, I want to have a opportunity for a crew that takes place in X location in the reach away from shelter one. Um, and this town is a particular set piece from a story. I could say this is like directly inspired by X story in loose upon the world's, the climate fiction anthology. And people could just read short fiction, which is like, you know, 20 pages or whatever and get what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Cool. Uh, so something that we often ask people, um, what other projects do you have on the horizon? Um, and these can be, Far off, uh, wild uh, game ideas uh, that are going to take forever to see fruition, or it can be like something that you're working on right now. Uh, we just like to kind of get an idea of the other things that people are, have, uh, other things that people are working on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on a lot of stuff actually. So I have a I have another Forged in the Dark one actually on the go, but I'm not quite ready to talk about it. Maybe it's a little. Um, whatchamacallit, paranoid. I don't want somebody to steal the idea. <laughs> is that I, true? Mean, I mean, I would have been happy for you to say it's the idea is a bit premature. Uh, but, you know, if you're paranoid about it, sure. Yeah, well, I, well, I don't think it's premature, but I've, I've already started allocating resources for it, for this Forge in the Dark game. And then, so there's another one of that if you're like, oh, what else could Fraser do with that system? This one's going to be quite a bit more of a drift and more substantial. So if you're interested in that, then uh, keep, keep tuning in, I guess. And beyond that, uh, the third book of the veil is in uh, works as well. I've already been play testing it, which is a uh, cowboy bebop ish veil version of it, where you're like an actual team of like, it doesn't have to be bounty hunters, but your moves are more towards the apocalypse world side of things where it's like, I can really mess people up <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea behind that is it's a biopunk one where you are imprints in a manufactured working class uh, or middle class, I should say, where you are genetically designed like in Gattaca to be the most efficient thing at a, task. a specific yeah task. Exactly. I have that and, in a Peter F. Hamilton book as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And um, um, Saga has uh, 
a planet that is colloquially known as Huxley Haven, where every citizen is designed for a specific task. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a similar idea, except that uh, since it's the third book, it is also the fictional positioning to have the uh, genetic memories of your previous character as well. So you're basically oh. like injected with your previous character. You have the legacy moves that you can choose from from them. Uh, but when you use them and you come up with uh, ones, then you get humanity harm and they that imprint sort of resurfaces. So it has the same sort of themes as Cowboy Bebop, where it's a group of people who um, are like kind of stuck in the past and won't move on with their lives and uh, you know, have to like push through that in order to get what they want. And usually it has some implications in their lives that are quite costly um yeah so that's the it's tentatively called the veil inheritance and that's being worked on and if you want to see kind of what that looks like i have youtube videos up of me playtesting it and um i'm also the producer of pocket-sized play and uh what is it we hunt the keepers and I have a Patreon where I make a PBTA game every month, which is serialized role-playing. So you you embody characters that are mundane people that are experiencing really uncanny events, sort of like a Fringe or X-Files, but the actual people that are going through the things before these... The people, not the agents. Yeah, exactly, yeah. That's kind of cool. And it's a serialized thing, so the every time you play it, it's meant to just be a one-shot, pick-up-and-play uh, meant for people that already know PBTA. It's only like 20 pages or whatever per issue. Two bucks, I think, is uh, how much it is per thing. And through playing it, you're constructing a meta-narrative of this God, city and place. I'm already thinking about how you could use that to make content, make um, scenarios for other games. Like, you could use that to generate... Um, for like any investigative game, like Delta Green, Call of Cthulhu, uh, Eclipse Phase, you could use that game to generate um, the 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 uh, initial event, yeah, sort of thing. It's like, oh, this weird stuff happened to a bunch of teenagers. Let's go out there and find out how it's connected to Shub Niggurath. Yeah, yeah, um, it's uh, it's been pretty interesting, and I can do a lot of like weird things because i know that people are playing the previous issue i can like get away with stuff in the the issue after that that is quite uh, neat like in the first one which is free you can go on drive through or on our website senjoko uh publishing.com and and get it and see if it's your bag or not but uh, the first one is where you're robbing a bank and the thing in the vault is the uncanny event and oh, wow. then shit happens. <laughs> and then the second one is suburbia where your neighbors who are like a, a witness to an uncanny event. And you're trying to get to the heart of that kind of mystery. And then the third one puts a twist on it where you're called takers and you're people who have to go to uh, the event in suburbia and like wipe clean what has happened. So you're targeting your previous characters that you've just played and using weird things like uh, uh, there's a person who can wipe clean memories and there's a person who can wipe clean um, like there's four different things and by doing all of them you 
essentially consume the event as if it never happened. And you're doing this to your characters from before. So it's, it's like really interesting. I'm very into um, having the players destroy themselves with new characters. I once played a uh, World of Darkness game where the, after playing like, you know, 12 sessions, actually it's probably more like 24 sessions, um, as these various supernatural beings that are thrown together, you there, we then made up a hunter, the vigil cell, and <laughs> were sent to kill our own characters. Uh, and two of the players, uh, myself and another, really got into it. We're like, no, we're going to just, we're going to specially make characters <laughs> that exploit our, our main characters' weaknesses. Um, both of us managed to kill our targets. Um, it was very fun. Uh, killing, killing our characters. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, a, I'm doing, I'm releasing them in sort of three issue arcs as well, but all of them build into like a larger narrative. So I find it interesting that after you play the takers issue and you go to the next arc, it's a sort of implied that all of those things are lurking on the peripheral. And mm-hmm. the one that is out now is called restless and your people in an old folks home where, uh, residents are going missing and you're the ones that need to uh, get to the bottom of it. So it's, I like it cause it's, it's not something that you generally get to play as, as old people being badass protagonists and, and whatnot. So uh, you get to do that. And then on the Patreon at the $5 level and up, you can actually vote on what the next issue will be. And I just posted that yesterday. So yeah. Well, that's very cool. Uh, fantastic. Uh, it was wonderful talking to you and hearing about, uh, all these various projects you have going and, and getting to know a bit more about, uh, Hack the Planet. Uh, sorry about the, uh, internet, uh, connectivity issues. Um, hopefully, uh, as much of that as possible will be fixed in the post-production. Uh, if people are looking to find out, find more content from you, uh, where can they do that? You can find me on all social media as just my name, Fraser Simons, because it's uh, it's not something other people had taken. <laughs> so uh, Twitter is just Fraser Simons, one word, F-R-A-S-E-R-S-I-M-O-N-S. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter and on G+, but I'm on, you know, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Cool. Uh, wonderful. Uh, and as of time of recording, you've got about 18 days left on the Kickstarter, which means that when this goes live, there will probably be 14, 13, um, I think, uh, left. Uh, so if anyone is listening to, uh, this, uh, and, thinks that Hack the Planet sounds pretty cool. Uh, you should go and check it out on Kickstarter uh, and consider uh, helping Fraser and a bunch of other awesome people make that game. Uh, and uh, yeah, other than that, thank you for being on the show uh, and talking to us. Uh, it was a pleasure. Uh, but uh, farewell from the past. I'm Rain.